You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a minor league play-by-play broadcaster as well as a longtime Marlins writer. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about some of the prospects that I think may break out this season. And if it's already a pretty well-established prospect, those who I think are going to take the step in the right direction. If I have time at the end, of course, I will go over some of the players that I decided to omit from the list and why I decided to do that, as I'm sure some Marlins fans may be expecting some players to be named that I don't touch on in this episode. Some reasons might be just because I don't have enough time to get to all of them. Others, it might be because I'm not as high on their outlook heading into this coming season. So I'll start right away with one of the more notable names as not really a breakout guy, as more so just somebody that I think is going to come into their own a bit more this season, and it's Lewin Diaz, and I'll get into why. I think everybody across the entire Marlins fan base can see the potential that Lewin Diaz has. A sweet swing from the left side, a big guy at 6'4", 217, but the swing is not that long, and it's not something that when you look at him, you're like, oh, he's big, and he comes with a lot of swing and miss issues. While the strikeout rates can at times get a bit high, I don't see the strikeout rates being a byproduct of a long swing or an inconsistent swing or too much movement with his swing, though he does start with a very low setup with his hands and does have a bit of a leg kick. He doesn't have any problem timing things up generally and doesn't seem to have too much issue repeating it. What I see with Diaz is the tendency to expand the strike zone. And when you look at the even small sample size we got from his major league debut where he only made 41 plate appearances, but I think it's enough of a sample size to look at some of the specific metrics and how it paints a picture to his larger outlook and based on what we already know from some of the minor league stats and metrics as well. When we look at what he's done in the past, he has had some strikeout rates that have ascended at times, especially as he got to the higher levels, but when we look at the 170 pitches he saw, not a huge sample size, but the 170 pitches he saw at the major league level, He had a 95% zone contact rate, which is incredible, unsustainable, to be honest, because when we talk about some of the best players in the game, Mookie Betts, for example, is one of the best players in terms of being able to have a high zone contact rate and still produce high exit VLOs and a high slugging percentage. Typically, young players who have the tendency to strike out more than 22 to 25% of the time, they're not going to have an above average zone contact rating. An average zone contact rating is right around 83%. So 95%, as I said, not sustainable. But even if he's in the mid to upper 80s, that's a testament to the fact that his swing is short, compact, repeatable, and contact is not an issue for him. In those small sample sizes of 170 pitches, his chase rate was well above the league average. His zone swing percentage was below the league average, and I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you here, but basically in a nutshell, what I'm saying is when he does decide to swing at pitches in the zone, he is very good at putting the bat on the ball. The issue is that he was swinging at those pitches in the strike zone less frequently than the league average. Only a 58% zone swing percentage average across the league is 66%. And you want to see him be more aggressive 
at those pitches in the strike zone, but then you also look at the fact that he is expanding the zone more frequently than the average hitter. So you're not swinging at strikes as much, but you are swinging at pitches outside the zone more than the average hitter by about 8% as well. Again, I know this major league sample size is relatively small, but at the same time, from the eye test of what I've seen in the minor leagues, this somewhat backs it up. I've always thought that Luan Diaz's approach has been more of the issue than his actual swing or anything like that. I mean, we see what he's capable of swing-wise, and it's just not a coincidence, in my opinion, that in those 41 plate appearances at the major league level that the metrics painted a similar picture. I just wish we had access to these kinds of metrics with minor leaguers, maybe one day, but for now, just have to settle for once they get to the big leagues, having all of those stat cast and baseball savant numbers. With Lewin, I think that he's going to put it together this year. I think he starts in AAA, and that's a great spot to just focus on the approach. There's not much that he needs to change swing-wise. He's shown that the swing works for him. He can hit for power. He's shown that he can hit for average. It's just the approach, and that's why a little stint of 150-200 plate appearances, maybe a little bit less even at the AAA level, would be a great primer for this season. And when we look at last year's numbers, he didn't get a chance to ease into it. He was at the alternate training site, but it was a lot of pressing thrown into the fire, much like Jesus Sanchez and much like a lot of these prospects were. And while the numbers don't paint a rosy picture for just about all of the offensive prospects that made debuts for the Fish last year, anybody that watched could see the difference between Monte Harrison's offensive struggles and Lewin Diaz's offensive struggles, for example, because even though they both put up about a buck fifty of a batting average and just did not fully get it going, Diaz was battling at the plate. He was just missing pitches and fouling off some pitches he should have been hitting that ultimately got him into some two-strike counts where he had to get into defense mode and would end up either making weak contact or just battling and ultimately going down on a tough pitch. Whereas we look at the struggles of uh, Monte Harrison this past season, it was swings that he was taking at pitches that were bouncing 56 feet. It was taking two two fastballs right down the middle for a called third strike. Just the entire discomfort of Monte Harrison at the plate was very tangibly different than Luan Diaz's struggles at the plate in terms of just what he put out numbers-wise. When I watched Diaz, I didn't see somebody that was in over his head or really struggling. When I watched Harrison, I saw somebody that was very much not ready for where he was at and very much in his own head to a ridiculous degree where it was tough to watch at times. And that kind of leads me into where I'm not expecting too much from Monte Harrison this coming year. Unfortunately, I am very skeptical on his likelihood to put it together offensively. We know how talented he is and how special he can be, but I am a little bit less optimistic than the average Marlins fan or Marlins writer uh, that Monte Harrison will figure it out this coming season just based on some of the things that I've seen through the offseason and just through the video from this past year, but hopefully I'm wrong and hopefully he'll put it together as we know how physically gifted he is. But when we look at Luis Diaz, he seems like a prospect that is going to have it all come together for him this year, especially if he gets a chance to just have some consistency at the AAA level, iron out some of those little wrinkles that he has in his approach. I think that he will come up to the major leagues then and make a major impact 
as a left-handed power bat for the Fish, which would be much needed and much helpful for this team, especially as they work things out this coming year with how they're going to handle Garrett Cooper and Jesus Aguilar and Adam Duvall. Of course, they're going to have to figure that out first, but it will be interesting to see how Diaz fits into the equation if he's what I think will be inevitably hitting at the AAA level pretty well. Next up is a total polar opposite type of prospect and somebody that maybe some of you haven't even heard of, but that's why I really like this guy as a unique and forgotten or almost unheard of type of prospect, and it's Remy Reed. Most of you Marlins fans are diehards that listen to the podcast, so you probably know who he is, but even for me, I had slipped, he had slipped my mind. And just going through some of the numbers from the past couple years and going through some video from some of the lower level Marlins minor league teams just to go and do my due diligence and make sure I'm not missing anybody. Remy Reed was somebody that I was incredibly impressed by with what he has arsenal wise. I think that he is somebody that is incredibly talented, has battled a lot of injuries. And if you may remember, he was drafted by the Marlins in 2016 as a sixth round pick out of Oklahoma State. He's a 6'5", 230-pound right-handed pitcher and could just be this little bonus that we've almost forgotten about for the Marlins because he's been hurt for so long. Dating back to 2016 after he was drafted, he threw just six innings in Batavia and in the Gulf Coast League. Then in 2017, really did not throw too much there, just 50 innings, was battling injury. Even less in 2018 after getting Tommy John surgery, only threw five innings. And then now in 2019, or now, that was two years ago now, holy crap, it's 2021. But in 2019, between Clinton and Batavia, he was able to rack up the most innings he has in a single year, even dating back to college at Oklahoma State, where he threw 75 and a third's innings, punched out 76 across those two levels. He was lights out in Batavia, as you'd expect, though, as a 24-year-old, you'd want him to dominate there. But then he gets moved up to full season A ball, and he was very good in Clinton as well. And 49 and a third's innings, punches out 43, and pitches to a 3.28 ERA. What impresses me the most with Reed, beyond just the numbers and small sample sizes here, is that he's got a live fastball and he's pretty deceptive with it. We mentioned the height at six foot five. The breaking ball is nasty. A really good pitch, and they seem to work off each other pretty well. He gets a lot of spin on the fastball, is able to locate it high and locate it in the upper parts of the zone and get some swings and misses. And then the breaking ball feeds off of that really well. It's more of a vertical 12 to 6 type of break, maybe more of an 11 to 5 break, but works off that pitch well. And that two-pitch mix is a very, very good reliever combo. I think the Marlins may still continue to try him as a starting pitcher, as in 2019, he made 14 appearances and all 14 of them were starts. But long-term, with the injury risk, with some of the concerns around him, I could see some bullpen potential for him, and that's not a bad thing because you do want to preserve his health. He is already going on 26 years old, and he's yet to pitch above A ball. So if that's the faster track to the major leagues, then maybe you do it that way. And then if he has success out of the bullpen and you have some confidence long term that he can go to the rotation, it's never too late for that. I would say the thing that keeps me wanting to see him as a starter a little bit longer is the fact that he has really good command 
Only walked 14 batters in those 75 and a thirds innings, and he was pretty good in college with the command too. So when you look at the command, that makes you want to hold out and almost think, okay, well, let's see this guy's a starter. Can he find that third pitch? Will the command continue to play up? And will those two pitches, the fastball, which I believe is an above average pitch, and the breaking ball, I think is a plus pitch, that could be a nice little combination there to be a solid back end starting pitcher with the height and size that he has, the effortless velo. If he can stay healthy, there might be a diamond in the rough here. But if the Marlins need some bullpen help, this could be a candidate that climbs very quickly through the minor leagues and could even slot into their bullpen by the end of this year. I believe he's going to start in high A ball, maybe even start in double A. I think there's a very good chance he could start in double A. And at that point, if he's pitching well in double A, you could instantly plug him into the bullpen by the middle of the season if he has continued to progress on this trajectory that I would assume he has. Obviously, we didn't get to see him in 2020, but there's a good chance that he is continuing to work and get healthy and build off of what was a really good 2019 for him. So keep an eye out for Remy Reed, a 26-year-old probably by the time the season starts. So the Marlins aren't going to really be slow with him. I think if he's putting up good numbers, they will fast track him and see if they can plug him into the bullpen if they need him. And that's what I mean by the Marlins do have a lot of different options in the minor leagues of guys that could jump out and put it together. And I think that's something that they're counting on a little bit. But I also was saying that the Marlins can't count on that. They need to go get some veteran arms, and they did that to bolster the bullpen. But now they might have some diamonds in the rough here of guys that can jump in, get some swings and misses, and be a little bit more dynamic as younger and controllable pieces as well. I'm going to talk about a few other candidates that I think are going to put it together this coming year, some that are more of the blue chip names and some that might not be as much of the well-documented names. In just a moment here, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. The sports world is in full swing right now, even though football season is over. You've got NBA, college basketball, NHL all going on right now. But the amazing thing about BetOnline is they cover everything everything from awards to TV shows to reality TV. They have real-time updated odds with props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds, and it's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Best of all, if you go to BetOnline right now and use the promo code LOCKEDON, one word locked on, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit. So if you deposit $100, you get an extra $50 on top of that. That's promo code LOCKEDON at BetOnline. AG, your online sportsbook experts. Also brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. 18 delicious flavors. They sent me even more new ones to try, and you can't go wrong. Just about every single Built Bar I try, I enjoy it, and they all taste like a dessert. They are all covered in chocolate, so easy to chew, and great for a keto diet because they are high in protein, but low in fat, low in carbs, low in sugar, low in calories. What else would you want from a protein bar? Go to BuiltBar.com and use a promo code Locked On. You'll get a 20% discount on your next order. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code Locked On for a 20% discount on your next order. So heading back now into this Marlins farm system, somewhat of a projection for this year based on certain players. I think this is a guy that we've been waiting to get the chance to really see, and because of 2020 not happening, 
because of the fact that he was drafted in 2019 and it was a short just little stint in the minor leagues after the draft as it always is for guys that were selected out of college and even high schoolers as well. Cameron Meisner, I mean, this guy is toolsy, toolsy, toolsy. And I think people are outside of the Marlins organization are sleeping on the tools that this guy has and the potential that this guy has. He would have been a first round pick had he not battled some injuries and struggled a little bit in that junior season. The Marlins were able to buy a bit low on him and take him. And I think that this guy could be a massive steal. He has a lot of similarities to Peyton Burdick. While he is not tapped into the game power that Burdick has, both of them are 70 grade raw power guys in my opinion. Burdick has showed it a lot more. Meisner has it in him though. I've seen it in batting practice. Scouts would concur with the same thing there about what he has to offer in terms of raw power. I believe Fangraphs themselves have a 70 grade raw power form. While he has not been able to put it together in terms of consistently hitting for power, he showed his above average hit tool as well throughout college and through his stint in A ball in 2019. In those 34 games that he did play, he hit 276. He struck out only 22% of the time, walked 13% of the time, was able to leave the yard two times, swiped eight bags, showing that above average speed to fringe plus speed, and that's good for a 125 WRC plus. When we look at the tools that he has as a left-handed hitter that can play the outfield, I think he's got a shot to stick in center field if he continues to work on his routes, but if he does not stick in center field, he's got enough power projection and a good enough arm to anchor a corner spot. This is somebody that's just not getting the love he deserves, and he's probably going to start the year in high A ball, and with the feel to hit that he already has and the power potential that he boasts, he could be on that Burdick trajectory. And when we look at Marlins prospects that have a legitimate claim at being a top 100 prospect if they put it together this coming season, Burdick is an obvious pick, and Meisner is an obvious pick as well. If both of those guys put it together this year and have a good full season, you have to really make the case for these guys to be in the top 100 with their athleticism and with their power profile that goes with a pretty solid defensive profile as well. And I think it's no surprise that the Cubs, who know what they're doing in terms of going after prospects and going after the guys that they want, they, according to that Craig Mish report, they wanted Burdick and they wanted Meisner and they wanted McCambly in return for Wilson Contreras. They didn't ask for some of the Marlins' top-level prospects, maybe because the Marlins said that they're untouchable, but they didn't ask for Jesus Sanchez, who would have been available in those deals. I would almost bet that they would have preferred Meisner or Burdick over Sanchez, who is or has been in the top 100 list for a while now and has that prospect pedigree from the Rays and even For some time with the Marlins, though he has struggled and has taken a hit in terms of his prospect profile, he's still 23 years old, same age as Burdick and Meisner, and has produced at the AA level already and even at AAA at times too. But frankly, if I'm the GM of the Cubs, I'm asking for Burdick or Meisner over Jesus Sanchez as well. And that's not a knock on Sanchez. I still believe he can put it together as a 280 hitter that can hit you 25-30 home runs, but there's just not as much of that certainty that there once was around him as a higher floor prospect. And when you look at the tools of Meisner and Burdick, it's fairly obvious that those guys have higher ceilings. Man, I'm pumped to see what those guys can do this coming year. When you compare those two to a Connor Scott, who is still younger at 21 years old, 
I just don't know if Connor Scott is ever going to be close to what was once expected of him as the 13th overall pick in the draft and someone that the Marlins invested a lot into. When I see Scott, he's somebody that I fully believe will be better this coming season and will make improvements as he's put on some muscle. He's made some improvements to his swing that I've broken down in the past. I do fully believe that he is going to be better this coming season, but is he ever going to be a guy that you don't regret taking in the first round? I don't know about that. I think when we look at him, he is not going to be that 20 home run guy that was once projected when he was selected as someone that has this plus raw power. His speed hasn't quite translated to his game enough yet. He hasn't shown enough of a feel to hit. He's not nearly on this level of disappointing, but when you look at a Mickey Moniak who went first overall and should have never gone first overall, they're similar in the respect that they had some high school polish to them, they had some well-roundedness to their game, and Moniak has not been this just abysmal minor league player. He's been decent and solid, and he even played his way into a major league debut this past season, and he'll probably be a major leaguer for some time as a fourth outfielder or slightly above replacement level outfielder that could have the potential. One of those guys that you're just always saying, well, he could put it together. He was the number one overall pick. We'll see. He's still able to hold his own. We'll see what he can do. That type of guy. I think Scott's not far off of that. At least the Marlins took Scott at 13 and not at one. But long term here, do we see much more than a 275, 280 hitter that's going to hit you 10, 15 home runs, best case scenario? That's what it really seems like for me with Connor Scott. And the speed doesn't translate as this major factor in his game yet. Maybe it will. And maybe that could be something that ultimately helps his value a little bit. If he was this defensive savant in center field, then it might be a bit of a different outlook, but he's a relatively average center fielder as well, though he does have a very good arm out there as somebody that averaged low 90s on the mound in high school. But the most important thing about center field is your routes and how you get to the ball, and that just wasn't something that he was fantastic at in the minor leagues so far. But at the end of the day, on the flip side of things, he has still not played that much. We haven't seen that much of Connor Scott. 2018 was just rookie ball and A ball for him. 2019, he was just an A ball for 95 games, was really hot in the second half of the season where he was there, and then got a chance to get his feet wet in high A ball. There's still a chance he can continue to put it together. But I think at the best case scenario now, you're looking at an everyday outfielder you're not looking at somebody that's going to be a major impact player for you. But if your team is relatively complete and you just need an everyday center fielder that could be that table setter type as he continues to hopefully iron out some of his issues at the plate and maybe can continue to walk at a decent rate for a speedy guy, then there could be something there. But at the best case scenario, it seems like you're looking more at somebody that's going to be a speedy table setter that can play your average defense in center field. And that's not what the Marlins were hoping for when they selected him. I believe they were hoping for somebody that would be more of a four to five tool type of player that would hit you more power than just six home runs in well over 150 games so far in his minor league career. I've talked about Victor Mesa Jr. a lot on this podcast as somebody that I think is going to ball out this coming year. I just am going to echo that again right now. I believe that he is going to have a very, very good year and play his way eventually up to high A at some point this season. I think they'll start him 
an A ball and he's going to mash there. He's got such a good swing. He's been working really hard this offseason. There's some present power there as well. And somebody else that's been one of those lower level guys that's younger that should put it together and have a surprisingly good year is Dioel Burgos, another guy that came over in a trade. It was the Austin Dean deal. And I'm hoping that the Marlins will get some sort of similar return when they go out and they trade eventually Harold Ramirez because Burgos is incredibly projectable with his power profile, though he is mostly filled out at this point. There is still so much projection with how he's able to tap into that strength with the swing that he has. So while he might not fill out anymore, he's going to find a way to use that strength more consistently as he already has shown the ability to improve upon in his stint where he started to get much better in the rookie ball levels and start to hit for a lot more power. The reports have been great from what I've heard from Instructs. The only issue is he is so physically mature for his age that there's not that much more projection physically, but I don't think he needs that much more projection physically as he's already able to impact the ball at a really serious level. The interesting guy that coming into this year, it'll be very fascinating to see how he's able to continue the momentum for the Dominican Winter League is Joe Dunnant. Is he going to be able to show that that wasn't a flash in the pan? Can he finally get it going at the minor league level where after being a second round pick after the family ties to Alex Rodriguez, he's now 25 years old. He's going to need to hit the ball consistently as a third baseman to eventually be a major leaguer. He's going to get a chance this year if he does hit to probably be a call up at some point this year if the Marlins need a bat for some reason. But also if he does hit this coming season could be a good trade chip if the Marlins want to go out and get another reliever at some point, though he would not be the centerpiece of a deal, but could be a good secondary or tertiary piece for the Marlins if they want to go get something. And ultimately, that might just be what he ends up being and how the Marlins salvage value out of him because they need to extend Brian Anderson. That is for another time. I've already talked about that enough. But real quick before I wrap up, a few other guys that I wanted to mention I have talked about Jake Fishman a little bit, but I think he's going to slot into this Marlins bullpen at some point this season. I'm very eager to see what Brady Encarnacion can do this year. And then some of the, I don't know, let's see what happens, but I'm interested to see. I could see it going one way or another. Jordan Holloway, incredibly fascinating. I could see him hitting a wall. I could see him being lights out as a reliever. Same story with Jorge Guzman. Those are going to be guys that are going to be very interesting to watch. Some high floor options. I think Paul Campbell will be a solid swingman type of option for the fish. Once Zach Pop is healthy, he should be a very intriguing option as well. And then the recent draft picks, Kyle Nicholas and Zach McCambly, I truly do believe that they are going to hit the ground running this year because of the fact that they already have live fastballs that they command pretty well and have that plus secondary pitch. It's just going to be whether they can command that plus secondary pitch. I'm sure there's plenty of other guys I needed to get to. Of course, Griffin Conan, as I've mentioned in passing before as well, he's going to have a big year, and I'll just say, dude, trust me on that one. And for the most part, there's going to be a big year for a lot of prospects in this Marlins organization, and that's going to be either very exciting or disappointing. At some point, it's going to be a little bit of both because not every prospect is going to reach their potential, but it is a make-or-break year for a lot of them, and it's going to be a lot of answers for the Marlins this year, which is good and bad. It's going to be some answers that you might not want, but it's good to have those answers so you can move forward and address your farm system and address your major league club accordingly. As always, thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking Marlins with you tomorrow.